Welcome to the Crime of the Century podcast, where we expose higher education as a scam that it is. I'm Kevin Friendville, and I believe that because of what we're teaching our children, we're losing an entire generation. And today, as always, we'll be diving headfirst into controversial subjects, undaunted by political correctness. Now, today, uh, we are going to continue the series that will lead us to the philosophical background that drives our professorship today. You'll recall in episode 70, we discussed the fallout of the German defeat in World War I and the rise of Hitler. And this all started with Podcast 61, which was about Western culture in general. So if you're just jumping in, you'll want to revisit those episodes as well. Today, we will examine the U.S. aftermath of World War I and how the left took the academics during this time period. At the conclusion of today's show, you'll be able to identify and define the 1930s and how they changed the American academic scene and see the issues that that set the stage for the 1960s. This will then help you avoid low-level political discussion and elevate your own knowledge when talking with your peers. As we have for the past 11 weeks, the series will help us decipher the background for the crime of the century. So if we're going to examine the 1930s and 20s, the aftermath for World War I in the United States, we're going to need to examine the last days of Woodrow Wilson's presidency. Uh, Wilson was a sort of popular president. It depends on who you ask. He was very popular among the elite. Of course, he was uh, an Ivy League uh, president. He was a textbook smart man and of course by the end of his presidency famously he was frail and stricken with uh, dementia he was very old and his wife was essentially running the day-to-day aspects of the nation and so in the 1920s the american public who wilson was much less popular with voted in warren g harding and harding was seen as a not necessarily a man of the people, but somebody who wasn't Woodrow Wilson in the sense that Wilson tried to bring back to the U.S. after the war uh, the League of Nations. And this was a precursor to the United Nations that we have now, which essentially um, would have been the same structure where the U.S. would have been a part of a global alliance between the United Kingdom and France, not the Soviets, and they forced this famously they forced the Germans to be a part of this uh, nation League of Nations after their defeat Italy would have been involved um, and and this was to ensure that there would be not there would not be another world war one in Europe but over here that was not something that the American people were going to buy the and still a large part of the American ethos, as there is some resistance still to us being part of the United Nations. And more often you hear people say, why is it our job to police the world? Well, that plays into the kind of individual uh, individualism of the United States, but also the fact that we are different than Europe. So when Wilson brought this idea home, it was crushed in the Senate. And even though it was his idea, the U.S. was not part of the League of Nations. Um, it, it, it did come to fruition. The League of Nations did happen, but notoriously it was ineffective and 
didn't really hold any power over nations leaving it or uh, doing what they want. Um, when Japan invaded Manchuria in 1931, the League of Nations denounced it and did nothing. So, pretty much like the UN today. If you're powerful enough, it doesn't really matter. And uh, the American people saw this as kind of a, an attempt to bring the U.S. into kind of a, a, a permanent alliance with Europe. And we've always been wary of that. Now, the other thing that we did was, and this wasn't on Harding, this was more so the what the American people wanted. We retreated from the world stage. We were bringing in huge influxes of uh, immigrants, primarily from Italy and uh, France and much of the old world because Europe had been devastated by World War I. So the province of America was, as it always had been, freedom and opportunity and the chance more so to start a new life and now this was physical. Europe was in ashes. America had not been touched by World War I. We had pretty much the lowest casualties of any great power in the war. Times were good. The American idea was essentially that we'll bring in all of these, these immigrants, we'll bring in all of these new people. Um, but once they're here, they're Americans, and you know we're kind of going to shield them from the rest of Europe. We're going to shield them from what, from what was. We had shied away from Teddy Roosevelt's argument, which was walk softly but with a big stick. We had shied away from the Monroe Doctrine and, and reinforcing that uh, old but still relevant doctrine of protecting the southern states even though Mexico had just gone through another revolution and the much of South America was still uh, finding its footing, um, the U.S., as is typical after, after a war, we, we retreated. But Warren G. Harding essentially had a, a scandal called the Teapot Dome Scandal, which was essentially a, a scandal in the Republican Party that Harding had very little to do with. There are conflicting reports. He may he he most likely knew about it, but didn't do anything, which essentially was uh, a little bit of nepotism, which is essentially family members getting kind of uh, getting cushy uh, government jobs within the within the party ranks, but also that they were being prioritized over qualified candidates, and this was a legitimate fear of the American public that many of them especially uh, the new immigrants, uh, more so in Italy, had seen this happen in their government routinely. And it was one of the reasons why they left. It's one of the reasons why the Italian government, especially in Sicily, was ineffective. I mean, aside from the fact that it was mafia-run, and that's not an Italian joke, I'm serious, the Sicilian government was pretty much useless. And the immigrants come over here and then you have this whole, you know, now the, the, the president, it, it, it's happening in the United States again. It was really only centered in the Midwest. It was not an issue in terms of, it wasn't widespread in the Republican Party. And um, we were overlooking the, the Democrats in uh, 
New York, excuse me, the Republicans in New York, I uh, didn't mean to misspeak, the Republicans in uh, New York at the time uh, also had a couple of issues with dealing with uh, strike breakers and in their day were, this is when the Republican Party became more the party of big business, essentially. And you can see this change and this big, this, this scandal turned into something much larger, I think, than Warren had predicted and was blown out primarily by places like the New York Times who compared it to their own situation in New York and some of the other larger papers who had an agenda to get Harding out of office anyways. It was much more subtle, obviously, than they, how they attacked Trump, and I don't think that's a political point. I think anyone with eyeballs can see that unless it's Fox, and unless it's nighttime Fox, you know, the media does not treat Trump with respect at all. And I'm not comparing Harding to Trump because the two are polar opposites, you know, Trump's so humble, he'll tell you that he's humble. Uh, Warren, Warren would make speeches. He would then go back home and he would write policies and he was reserved. He was not a man who was brash and he was not a man who was wealthy by his own means. He was, he was wealthy because he had risen through the Republican ranks. But even after this Teapot Dome scandal, Calvin Coolidge was reelected, and Coolidge is another Republican. Again, famously, he said almost nothing, and some people have attributed this to the Red Scare that the the Soviets had just won in Russia by the time Coolidge was elected. So we were wary of the communists who um, had now taken their first major state, and we had supported the 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 whites in that, which isn't a racial thing. The whites were the democratic wing of uh, Russia, they wanted Russia to turn into an actual republic instead of the Soviet republics. We had supported them and lost, and as a result, we had positioned ourselves from the outset as opposed to the Soviet Union. So there are people who've argued that the reason the Democrats didn't do too well when Calvin Coolidge was elected was because of this Red Scare going on that we were afraid that the communists would come in with some sort of retribution. But I think that's a little bit retroactive. I think that's a little bit um, looking at it from a modern perspective that the Democrats in the 20s were not outright communists and socialists. The socialists in the United States had their own party. The communists had their own party. The Democratic Party, um, though obviously more left, was not a European kind of left. It was still very much held to the constitutional standards, still very much held to the idea and the ideas laid out in the Constitution and was opposed themselves to communism and socialism and regarded them as radicals just as the Republicans did. So I am not saying here that, that the Democrats were synonymous with this Red Scare going on, which wasn't palatable in the same way that the 1950s Red Scare was, um, just simply because the Soviets weren't as powerful as they were in 1950. Regardless, Calvin Coolidge is elected despite having many of the media members uh, against him. And this is where you can start to see the bias in the media, especially in the United States, start. And it wasn't that it was after the progressive era where 
the media thought it was their job to go after big business. The Republican Party is the party of big business, as we've mentioned. We're starting to become that. And so the two of them have become intertwined. And now we'll examine in later podcasts from now how this changes over time in the 1960s and eventually get into the 80s and to modern time. But Coolidge as a president is perhaps the most underrated U.S. president in history. I think he should be on Mount Rushmore just because the economic boon of the 1920s would not have been possible without him. During the Progressive Era, we put a lot of restrictions on big businesses. We had a lot of good advancements. I think one of the government's roles, and, and something that if I could have my um, mythical debate with John Locke, I would argue that one of the government roles is to uh, break monopolies, because once monopolies form, they're anti-capitalistic. And the whole point of, especially the United States, is to encourage capitalism. So one of the things, don't, when I say we had too many regulations, I don't mean things like antitrust laws. I don't mean, you know, the FDA. Some of the things that were necessary that came out of the progressive era. But like always, we went a little too far and business was stifled. Business was simply not as efficient. Now, Coolidge also did have the benefit of the car becoming much more commonplace. The automobile and new automation techniques and the discovery of radiation, all of these different new scientific advancements had really made the factories themselves, each individual one, much more efficient. But the thing that drove that efficiency, I would argue, is the cutback of regulations and rapid deregulation that Calvin Coolidge argued for. But as kind of a Side note, uh, Coolidge will never have another president like him, not because of his arguments against income taxation, which now exists in the United States, um, not because of his economic unleashing, but because he had this odd sense of humor. I suppose it's not odd. It's definitely an English sense of humor. It's very dry, very witty but he notoriously used it very little and said very little. So he's at the state dinner, and this is just a, a side note, he's at a state dinner and there's a bunch of reporters there who are having uh, a meal and they're asking questions and there's other people in, in power that are there. And you, you'll have this uh, less so nowadays, obviously with, with technology, there's not as, as much need for face-to-face -face communication, but this was a way of Coolidge and the Republican Party essentially um, allowing themselves to be questioned by the media and hoping to get some decent PR out of it. And a reporter asked, uh, I don't think it was the New York Times, but it might have been, he asked uh, the president, he said, you know, you don't say much, but I'll bet, uh, I'll bet you that I'll get you to say more than three words by the end of this evening. And Coolidge, uh, Coolidge famously looked him square in the face and said, uh, you lose. Didn't say a thing the rest of the night. <laughs> and that, that kind of, the way that, that it was reported, the way that the article was written um, by this reporter was done in a way that still had respect for the 
for the office of the presidency, that he thought it was fun that Calvin Coolidge played that game with him and, and, and stuck to it. Coolidge didn't say a thing. When everyone left out of the, uh, filed out of the, the state room, Coolidge shook their hand and kind of did a little bow to them, didn't say a word. He stuck to it. He said, you lose, and a guy lost. And the article was written in the, kind of this playful manner. I mean, but can you imagine nowadays if Bush or Trump had done the same thing and would have been uh, portrayed as some sort of affront to the media. They would have tried to make him look devilish. They would have tried to, but that change in the media is again something for, for the next podcast. But I want, I want to plant the seed in your mind that, that, that the way that media and the landscape has starting, it has started to change now in the 20s. Uh, different than it had been in the progressive era. And some of this is fueled by the way, as we can see during the Wilson presidency, by the way that journalists are taught and where they're taught and how they're taught at different academic institutions. And one of the things before we move on to Herbert Hoover and FDR, one of the things that can't be ignored for some of the boom in the roaring 20s has been the effect of war loans. We loaned a lot of money before we were even involved in the war to France and to England to help hasten the war effort but also not get ourselves directly involved. Now the Germans and uh, I've actually I'm in the process of writing a book on this called How Inflation Killed the, Killed the West. The Germans had no gold reserves, no civil reserves after the war um, whatever was left was donated, quote unquote, to France to uh, try to lower the reparations. The Germans needed a new currency. They needed to base it on something that didn't exist because currency-wise, the untethered currency was not something that the Germans were willing to go for. We have a current untethered currency with uh, the Federal Reserve. An untethered currency just means it's a currency that's not tied down by a, um, a body of principle. So it's not tied down by gold prices, silver prices, or real estate, what have you. Well, the Germans needed a new currency and they had no gold and no silver reserves to, to choose based off of it. And so they picked uh, the real estate market. And now as volatile as we know that is, can you imagine it with no regulations and the fact that a lot of people are moving out of Germany, not moving into Germany. So I understand that they didn't have a whole lot of options, but the increasingly worthless German currency, because in order to try to pay their debts to the French, they had to print a lot of this um, currency. Now it was based uh, at least on some sort of some sort of principle. So it wasn't as though the money was, it wasn't as though it was instant hyperinflation as it could have been. Regardless, the, uh, and the German government didn't have the same controls that it would have if it had the Federal Reserve, for instance. But it would pay this, this currency that would go up and down in value that, again, they had no control over because it was the real estate market that, that controlled the value of the currency. They pay this to France. France, that owes us a, a war loan that we had given to them, France 
converts that to whatever it is in francs, gives it to us, converts it to that converts it to uh, the U.S. dollar, which is now untethered, mind you, and then we use that to pay our debt down or fund roads or uh, different projects or uh, uh, even some of our early welfare programs, etc. And this process continues uh, throughout the 20s. And what this is doing is essentially creating a bubble because all of this is based back on the German currency, which is quite, uh, quite volatile. And so a lot of the, the companies that are the early companies within the, the stock market, which again was was unregulated um, in a different way than, than when Trump says deregulation, we're not gonna it's not gonna create a, a Great Depression. When Trump says deregulation, he's talking about a lot of the stifling regulations. But in the twenties, especially you had this huge boom with the new technology, especially factory technologies. And simultaneously you had a lot of these companies that were unstable. You had uh, the government which rightfully was staying out of letting these companies uh, sink or swim, but you had this huge influx of U.S. dollars, which was creating our own inflation, plus you had people, this, this stock market, this public option was, was available for people to invest and make huge amounts of money, and so you had everything from shoe shiners to, to you know, the people walking down the street and, 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 and $2,000 cars, which at that time was a lot of money. You had all these people putting money in the stock market, and it's it's just creating this huge, huge, huge bubble, which every bubble bursts, regardless of you know how it how it starts. And when Hoover, Herbert Hoover comes into office in 1928, the economy is doing great, but not even a full year into his presidency, that bubble bursts on in October of 1929. And it is the worst economic depression in the history of mankind. Not only is it worldwide, but it's the epicenter is Wall Street. That the U.S. unemployment was in the 20 and 30 percentile. The uh, there were people who, they, uh, you know, you had to create, you had to invent new ways to get food. Famously, the, the dandelion salad came out where people would go and they would, um, you know, they either had a knife or they'd buy a knife and they'd go out in the backyard and they'd pick dandelions, you know, wash them off and make a salad out of, out of dandelions because it was free because nobody had any money. And if you did have money, it was inflated. It wasn't worth what it was, what how much you had. Now... We saw what happened last podcast when that hit in Germany, Nazis show up and would eventually then lead into World War II. It almost turned France communist. France was broken and shattered by this as well, uh, which partly led to their fall, an easy fall to the Germans in 1940. In England, Stanley Baldwin did his best, but with their welfare programs more advanced, quote unquote, than, than the U.S., um, it also led to a thinning of the royal army, which made that England was much weaker when Germany declares in 39. But for our discussion today, Herbert Hoover, this was, I mean, Calvin Coolidge, people were playing with him. The, the media was, was friendly toward him. Times were good. When times were bad, especially for Herbert Hoover, the media machine just clicked on and I mean, he he had they had every day pictures of people of veterans who had 
uh, been gone broke, uh, veterans of World War One that were in these big tents called Hoovervilles, every day, front page of New York Times. And you would have marches that, that would be going on, uh, and there were, there were, there were pictures of, uh, of that every day, front page of New York Times. Now, television was coming out for the wealthy, and they would see images of this with the news. With uh, NBC uh, was the new national broadcast corporation. And they would broadcast images of, of what appeared to be the U.S. falling apart. Now, people were more civil here. We didn't have the, the street fights that were happening in Germany between the Nazis and the communists. We didn't have people shooting each other um, in, in the middle of, uh, you know, in the middle of the streets and arguing for which party was going to give people their bread. But we did have food lines. We did have bread lines. We did have conditions that we had not seen in the U.S. and had not been as publicized in the U.S., ever, or, or maybe even since. And this, I mean, there was, uh, there was no amount of PR, there was no politician, there was nobody who could have survived that catastrophic economic breakdown. And it wasn't, it wasn't there was nothing Huber, Herbert Hoover could have done. If the Great Depression hit in 33 and FDR was in office, it would have hit in 33 and FDR would have never been in elected as many times as he was. But Herbert Hoover, uh, it, was, it was a presidency that, that, that was doomed as soon as that depression hit. And the appearance to the American people was that the U.S. government wasn't doing enough, that we needed rapid response, we needed, we needed a president who seemed to care. One of the traits of Herbert Hoover was he was much like Warren G. Harding. He was a lot, he was less so Calvin Coolidge, but he was very rigid. He was a rigid conservative. He was, appeared to be a friend to big business. All of these things that you do not want to be when, when the economy falls apart. FDR, exact opposite, even though he came obviously from the Roosevelt lineage, which helped him as Teddy is one of our great presidents. He uh, was a New York guy who, uh, you know, didn't have a care in the world. The, the Great Depression didn't really affect him, but that's not the face he put on. FDR put on a gentle face. He had the fireside chats. He put on this persona of being a man of the people. And the media at this point all gravitated to him. And we saw this uh, with President Obama that there was no, there was nothing that he could do, FDR, that was wrong. That now in, in the 30s, the media see it as their job to, to rescue the United States. And we see that again today with, with Trump, that you know, the Washington Post says democracy dies in dark darkness. And you have um, the media saying, you know, we need to rescue our democracy and get rid of Trump. Well, the media, whenever it, it flocks to the left and says we need to save our democracy, you, we would assume it gets people elected because of what happened with FDR. We'll, we'll have to see how it affects Trump. Regardless, the 
image of Franklin Roosevelt was a good one and something that got him elected. Uh, hadn't I mean, there was no way Hoover was going to win anyways, but uh, FDR um, probably could have won had there been no depression against Hoover. He was just that kind of charismatic person. Unfortunately, he was also a little too friendly with the Soviets. He was, I would argue, attempting to become a dictator. He, there was no constitutional term limit on the presidency. There was no, in those days, it, it was tradition. George Washington stepped down after two terms, so it's tradition that you did not run after two terms again, but it technically wasn't law that you couldn't run again and again and again. FDR is the only, uh, is one of the only presidents um, to not only contemplate running for a third term, but to do so and win the way that, 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 that he won all the way up till his death in late uh, and mid-45. Regardless, he instituted Social Security, which was the idea that you could, in old age, the government would essentially give you a, uh, a payout that you would pay into the system f during your working years and get a payout, essentially an annuity. Now, one of the things that people don't talk about, unless you're Ronald Reagan, is the fact that if you spent the money that you gave the government in Social Security on an annuity, the open market would give you more money in retirement. Now, I'm not trying to sell you an annuity, I'm not trying to, and none of that stuff. That's just the cold hard facts because Social Security, there is no lockbox. It was pitched as the money goes into some sort of lockbox and then, you know, you get your money back eventually. One, that doesn't account for inflation, and two, that's not how it works. That money is taken as a tax and spent who knows where. And the government will find a way to fund Social Security, fund the program, either from other programs, other tax dollars, or by taking out a loan to then give that money to its citizens. And that's why now, nearly 100 years later, it's broke. Not even 100 years later, it's broke. Social Security will be bankrupt by 2025, I believe, is the estimated date. Maybe we can kick the can down the road and keep loaning money to the broken program. Regardless, FDR, for all of the good press that came out of the New York Times, out of the media of his day, and growing media of his day, namely uh, television, namely um, uh, radio had gotten into every home. We cannot get around the fact that he did run four times and die in office. That at least we had good people who, who put into law that you could only run twice. But he as a president was our closest we'd ever become to turning into a presidential dictatorship. Now, as we wrap up here, the final point I wanted to make is that none of his programs got us out of the Great Depression. That is a fallacy that, that FDR led us out of the Great Depression, then he led us through World War II. I'll give him credit for 
not letting the communists take over the country in 33. But his programs, it can be argued that his programs lengthened the depression, that money of the European countries had gotten out of the Great Depression by 37, 38. Of course, this was in part due to the rise of Hitler and the fact that people were gearing up for war. But many of FDR's programs, we had a, a slight recession in 38, that, that they had done nothing except make the American public a little less angry and frustrated. That what really got us out of the Great Depression was the fact when World War II hit, when we needed to supply England with arms and munitions, and then when we needed to fight Japan, and unemployment rate went you know, through the, through the tank was all of those factories switching back on, all of those jobs coming back to life when we needed to make planes and warships and munitions and tanks and all of that stuff. That's really what got us out of the Great Depression officially instead of these social net policies that really were instituted in good faith but did not help the American people reclaim their lives that had been lost in the 20s. Of course, the idea that FDR was a hero and that there will be more programs and they will help even more people get out of poverty is something that we're going to explore um, next week on Crime of the Century in uh, the 60s and in the 70s. And we're going to examine how the media in the United States especially really became um, a player for the, the left and decided that they were advocates and not journalists. And there is a difference, and it's part of the crime of the century.